Turn with me to that verse which uh, we've read together and uh, Stephen quoted. It's in Hebrews and chapter 3. Hebrews and chapter 3, and we're going to begin by just reading the verse. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, uh, Christ Jesus. Our message this afternoon is centred around uh, just simply uh, the words, consider the apostle of our profession, uh, Christ uh, Jesus. Let me begin by saying something which may be obvious to all of you, but I will begin nevertheless by saying that the epistle to the Hebrews is a very rich epistle indeed. Uh, W.H. Griffiths Thomas, uh, a bygone preacher, uh, said actually concerning this epistle, undoubtedly this is one of the greatest and most important epistles in the whole of the New Testament. I think I agree with him. Campbell Morgan actually said that this epistle was God's last word uh, to man. And if that is so, how important is that? Last words are very important, aren't they? Uh, James Stevens actually said this, God who spake to the Hebrew fathers through the prophets uh, spake to the Hebrews of of a latter time through his son uh, during his sojourn on earth. And with those uh, sort of words, it encourages us to look into this book to try to find out and to understand uh, something about it. Now, the first thing uh, that I want to say is that uh, we try certainly to give um, uh, what may be termed as a title to messages. I think that's often a a very important thing to do, and I do certainly in my own uh, congregation. Uh, I think that the title that I would give to the message this afternoon is simply this, Christ the only way. Christ the only way. Now, the first comment that I have to make about this epistle and about our text is, of course, that it's an an orphan epistle. Uh, We don't know who really wrote this uh, particular epistle. Most of us uh, would reckon that the Apostle Paul actually wrote uh, this epistle. Uh, But uh, some good men and great men have uh, thought that maybe it was Luke It certainly uses a lot of medical words which are only to be found in the Gospel of Luke and also in the Acts of the Apostles. And so that may be a a hint that it might have even been Luke. And then others would say Apollos, who was mighty in the Scriptures. Uh, And again, if you read the commentaries, some will even side with Barnabas and Philip and Priscilla. So you can take your pick if you like. Um, But one thing that we have to understand of course is simply this that we most certainly reckon it was Paul but really it was God wasn't it I remember saying that some years ago in my own congregation and we don't know who actually wrote this epistle and one little girl this big uh, said to her mummy afterwards and her mummy said to me uh, she said to her mummy she said what a silly thing to say everybody knows that God wrote it well, it wasn't anything to say. <laughs> and I realised that I was rebuked by a little child. And we have to understand that, of course, don't we? That wherever we turn the word of God, it's like some of the orphan psalms. We don't know really who wrote them, but yes, we do. Of course, God did. And the word of God is inspired. And I believe every word is inspired in the scriptures. And that is why in the expositions which I give, I try to go through every word in a particular text. And we'll probably do that Uh, this afternoon now uh, this epistle really is all about God speaking Uh, you'll see in the first verse that really gives us the hint doesn't it God who in summary times and in divers manners spake in time past under the fathers by the prophets and so uh, the whole theme through the epistle is God speaking and uh, we must understand that this should really thrill us as Christians Uh, it, it should thrill us in the sense that God is pleased to communicate with us. Remember this, that we only understand and know and experience faith by the word of God. If God hadn't spoken to us, then we wouldn't understand the things of God, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so we must understand that if God didn't speak, we wouldn't have faith. But we do have faith this afternoon, simply and solely because God has been pleased to speak to us. Now, 
if you read this epistle and study it for yourself, you will know that it's written to Jewish Christians. People had been converted and they were going back uh, to the ritual and to the uh, ceremony of the past. And somehow they were harping after the past. They had uh, taken up with Christianity and they had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, in my opinion, uh, but now uh, somehow uh, they wanted to drift back uh, to what was in the past. And so really the main theme of this epistle is, listen, you've got something better in Christ. Why go back to something which is of a less importance? Uh, and and uh, so he encourages them in this epistle uh, to go on. And maybe one of the key verses, and it's only one of the key verses, is chapter 6 and verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, which is the Old Testament, let us go on unto perfection, or to maturity. And, uh, of course, that is really the message. Let us go on. And we need to be reminded of that continually ourselves as well. Now, by way of introduction, and I hope that uh, you don't mind me do this, but I, I think want to try and build up a good foundation of what we're going to say today, uh, there are various studies that you can take and have in this uh, particular book. There are five distinct warnings in this epistle. And those warnings are very, very important. Now, I believe that the people who, to whom this is written were actual Christians. I know some people will say uh, they were only uh, Christians in name and, and on the outside. I don't believe it. If you have tasted of the heavenly gift, then you are a saved person. And if you have been enlightened, you are a saved person. And all of these things come out, uh, and I believe that they were. Uh, they were in danger of losing, not their salvation, but in danger of losing their reward. And a backslider is always in danger of that sort of thing. And so that really did. But here is, is, uh, are five warnings. For instance, in chapter 2 and verse uh, 1 to uh, 1 to 4, uh, you will remember that great uh, text, uh, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect uh, so great salvation? Uh, that text is often used uh, as a gospel text. Uh, maybe there's, uh, it's legitimate to use it in that way, but certainly it is a text to Christians that you and I have this so great salvation and we neglect it. It's like uh, a, a very uh, tender plant. If we neglect that plant, well, that plant may die. And you and I must understand that we mustn't neglect that great salvation that we have uh, within our souls. That's a warning. And then uh, in chapter 3 and verse 12, and I'll turn it over with you, it says there, So I sw swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. We read together that particular chapter, and uh, very often, very much of it is, is concerning the children of Israel who didn't enter into the land of Canaan, uh, simply because of unbelief. And so there is a warning against unbelief. We know that in our churches in this day and age, uh, they are filled with unbelieving believers. And you and I ought to believe what God says and stand upon the word of God and believe it with all our hearts. In chapter 5 and verse 12, uh, we have here, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as of need of milk, and not of a strong meat. Well, really, this is about apostasy. These people were going back. They were departing from their present position. They need that someone should teach them again. Again, here is a warning for us. Uh, and in chapter 10, we go right over to chapter 10 now, uh, to chapter 10, verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. What that really says there is, here is a backsliding people. People are going back. And it's possible to, to sin willfully. There's no more sacrifice for that. We have the sacrifice for our sins uh, when we came to Christ and know something of the redeeming power of the blood of Christ. But after that, if we go back, listen... We must be very careful. Here's a, here's a warning concerning, again, uh, apostasy and willful sin after the flesh. And then uh, we know that there's uh, one other uh, uh, as well, uh, and, and that's found in chapter 12. And I'm only just skimming over these because this isn't really our subject. 
but nevertheless I want to give the background to this. Chapter 12 and verse 15 uh, where it says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby you may be defiled. If you look around those verses you'll see that it's possible to be obstinate, not to listen to the word of God, have deaf ears. It's interesting, isn't it? The Lord Jesus said so many times, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Why was that? Because they were dull of hearing and they were deaf. And so many in our congregation are like that as well. And we need indeed ourselves to be alert to what God has to say to us. So there's the five warnings. But then also... The words in this particular book are good. By the time I finish today, we'll have a real uh, scout through this wonderful book and I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, but there are words. Uh, for instance, the word better uh, is in the original or in the English language in our, in our authorised version. The word better is 13 times. Now when, when, when in scripture a word reoccurs, uh, we call it the law of reoccurrence or the law of reoccurring words and that means there's emphasis upon it if you kept on saying something you want to really emphasise it don't you to someone so that they really understand what you have to say and this is God speaking and so God says better uh, better and, and, and what he's saying here is all things in Christ are better than what they had in, in the past Christ is better than the angels or greater than the angels Christ is greater than the, uh, than the prophets Christ is better than the law uh, Christ is better than the sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, in Christ we have a better hope he's greater than the leaders and they mention here uh, Moses and, and Joshua uh, we have a better testament uh, we have a better priest which we'll think of a little later on and so all of that really is emphasising he is the preeminent one and we have to understand that. And then there's another word that is mentioned and that is the word perfect. The word perfect occurs again sometimes in the Greek which is not translated in that way but it should be and, and it occurs 14 times. Now you imagine that. Now once again you see here we have what is it, 13 chapters, but we 14 times it mentions this particular word, perfect. The Old Testament sacrifices were not perfect. Why? Because although the man may come and have his sins forgiven now, yet he had to come again the next year. And those same sins he had to confess, beside the sins that he had committed during that year. So his sins were covered, but not cleansed. His sins were covered, but not forgiven. So he had to come back again and again. In Christ, of course, our sins, though there were many, are, are all wiped away. And we know as far as the east is from the west, so far have he removed our transgressions uh, from us. And, and the law and, and the ritual uh, uh, could never make a person perfect. And we understand that, don't we? But in Christ, we are made perfect. How remarkable is that? And that's what this epistle really is all about. And then we have another word. <coughs> this word is, is the word eternal. Let me turn you to one or two things. Uh, chapter 5 and uh, verse uh, 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. See, we believe in eternal salvation. We believe once you're saved, you're saved forever. Uh, we certainly believe that final perseverance of saints call it what you will but it's eternal salvation and we understand that and the Jew never knew that in the Old Testament but our salvation is eternal and then uh, chapter 6 and verse 2 of the doctrines of baptisms of laying of hands of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment oh we believe in hell and we believe that that hell is eternal judgment uh, and the word of God makes it plain and clear and then chapter 9 and in verse uh, 12 uh, where we read neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood he entered in once uh, into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption forever forgiven why? because we have eternal uh, redemption uh, the blood of Jesus Christ God's son cleanseth us and goes on cleansing us from all sin 
and chapter 9 and verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Eternal Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Chapter 9 and verse 15. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. You see, all things in the Old Testament were only temporary. It doesn't matter if it's a tabernacle or the temple or, or the sacrifices or even the law. They were tem temporary. But in Christ, of course, they are eternal, forever and forever and forever. And it's interesting, of course, that uh, I've given you five there of these eternal things which are mentioned in this book. Five is the number of grace. And all of these things are of grace to you and I who believe. Now, there are two main themes in this book. And the two main themes are very simple. Uh, because they're just simply this. First of all, the preeminence of Christ. He is greater than anything of the old covenant. And the second thing is concerning the priesthood of Christ. And, and it seems to me that the main theme, really, of the book is concerning the priesthood of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And our text, of course, is really the key verse of all that. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, uh, Christ Jesus. And so, if we understand that, uh, we will see how these all fit in, because uh, we're dealing with the key verse, probably to the whole of the understanding of, of this particular book. And this is the substance of our profession. We make a profession, even our coming here uh, today. Uh, when we open the doors of our church on a Sunday, we make a profession that we believe in a living God, that we believe that living God deserves to be worshipped. And so we come and we make our profession. Well, what is our profession? Our profession or confession, because it's the same thing, our profession or confession is in the Apostle and High Priest. And that really is our confession uh, today. Now the word uh, is often used, uh, that very word concerning, and maybe it is concerning the high priest, and maybe we'll look at that again, but it's here and it's in chapter 4 and it's in chapter 10 and in chapter 7 as well. Uh, so that there's quite a lot of, of references uh, to this word of our profession. What is our profession? What is our confession? It's in the apostle and high priest, and we must always uh, remember that. Now, the two phrases which are mentioned, or the two descriptions which are given there, seem to me uh, to link all of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it was here on earth or there in heaven. And we're going to look at all of that. So, in one sense, we're having a, a crash course in, in the doctrine of the work and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, uh, this is by way of introduction. I hope you don't mind me labouring this a little bit, but I, I feel it's very necessary for us to do that. And, and remembering that every word is inspired of the word of God, our verse has a lot to say. It doesn't only say about the apostle and high priest, but it says a lot more. And I want you to notice, first of all, uh, to whom it is addressed. Uh, here it is. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider... We stop there for a moment because we want to understand what this is. They are brethren. That's why I've said to you that uh, those who were going back, uh, some people say, no, they couldn't have been Christians. Uh, I don't believe in a half-Christian, actually. I believe you're either a Christian or you're not a Christian. You're either born again or you're not born again. You're either the elect or you're not the elect. And that's what the Word of God seems to teach to me. But here we have people, and it says, wherefore, holy brethren. They are brethren. They're part and parcel of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're part of the family of God. They're saved. Now what does it say about them? Well, it says also that they are partakers. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Partakers. So what does that mean? It means a, 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 a special, close relationship. They have partaken of something. 
they've been given something and, and they're partaking of, of that. You remember that Peter uses exactly the same word when he speaks about partakers of the divine nature. Have you ever imagined what that must be? Well, then that's our, our salvation, being partakers of the divine nature. Paul speaks about being partakers of his sufferings. Partakers of his sufferings. And so we are in this life. There's no question about that. So here we are, brethren and, 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 and partakers. Now, you'll notice one or two things. The first thing that you'll notice, they have a holy character. Wherefore, holy brethren. They're not sinless, are they? No, of course not. They're ordinary people. They're not perfect uh, in their walk. But what this stands for, of course, is their position and their standing before God. And that standing and position have been given them through the blood of Calvary. And because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, which dwells in them richly. They are holy brethren. And what a privilege it is that you and I are called that. We say we don't deserve that. No, we don't, but... God in his mercy and in his grace has given us that so that we are saints in Christ Jesus, holy brethren. And then you'll notice the second thing is they have a heavenly calling because it says, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. The heavenly calling. How marvellous this is. What a dignity this is. We're here today because you and I are partakers of the heavenly calling. What a privilege. Ours is not an earthly calling. We may do lots of things in this earth, but over and above that, greater than anything else we ever do, is that we are partakers of a heavenly calling. We're followers of the Lamb. We're workmen for Christ. We are called servants of God, ambassadors for Christ, soldiers in the battle. Pilgrims, kings and priests. And all of these things concerning our authority as believers. But what a, what a description of heavenly calling. Partakers of this heavenly calling. And one day, of course, we will be called to heaven itself. We have a heavenly calling now, but one day we'll have the call come up hither to heaven itself. Now... We could look at these verses in, in lots of different ways, but I hope that we're understanding a little bit about these verses now when we try to give you the background. It was said about an old uh, soldier in, uh, in the Civil War in, in the United States of America. I've just come back from there this week after preaching all last week in a big conference there. And... Um, they're still talking about the Civil War and sometimes you go along when you're in the South and I was in Tennessee uh, and you go along and you see these Confederate flags they still think they're fighting the war but um, certainly one soldier was dying after that uh, after the war uh, he was injured very badly uh, and they could hear him say here, here they thought what on earth is he saying here for all the time and they said why do you keep on saying here he said, I heard my, my name. And as a good soldier, I answered, here. You have to do that in the army, you see. And, and, and he said, but I heard the roll call in heaven. And when my name was called, I said, here. And he said it once again. And he'd gone. One day we'll hear our name called. And we will have to answer uh, the roll call. And it links with all what happens now. We're partakers of the heavenly calling. And one day we'll hear the heavenly calling from heaven itself and join the happy throng. <coughs> but there's a third thing. And the third thing that I, I see here is what I call the happy consideration. Look at this verse, and I said I, I go through all the words. Well, I do. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Consider. You know, we have to take this seriously. If we considered ourselves, we could be discouraged, couldn't we, because of our failure. If we considered one another, we might be defeated in our lives because we see again so much that discourages us around about us. If we consider the world, we could be alarmed at what's taking place in the world. 
But what are we told to do? Consider the Apostle and High Priest of our profession. How important that really is. You know, this word occurs a number of times as well, so let me just turn you to some of these. Chapter 7 and and verse 4, I believe. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of all the spoils. That's Melchizedek, of course. And we'll say something about him, no doubt, later on. And then in chapter 10 and in verse 24, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Uh, you know, it's not very often we should be called provokers, is it? But we should provoke each other unto good works and unto love, because the Word of God tells us uh, to do that. And then chapter 3 and verse, no, chapter 12 and verse 3. This is a well-known verse, of course. Looking unto Jesus the author, this is verse 2, and finishers of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Is it remarkable how there's a reoccurrence of words in this particular epistle, more than any other epistle in the New Testament? And so this word consider is a, is a very, very important one. And what are we to do this afternoon? Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. We should be encouraged to do that. And we should be excited by doing that. What greater thing can we can consider today than the apostle and high priest of our profession? We could talk about the politics of today, couldn't we? We could talk about the budget. Uh, we could talk about the economic situation that we all face in this world. We could talk about a hundred different things, sport maybe or whatever. And we could speak a lot about it. But ah, listen, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. That's empowering in our lives to do that. It refers to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It refers to his offices uh, as our great redeemer. Now, of course, let me say to you, so that you understand this, it's an interesting word, isn't it? The apostle and high priest of our profession. Why is it that we're mentioning here Jesus as the apostle? Didn't he have apostles? Yes, he did. Ah, but he is the apostle. You see that definite article? He is the apostle. And, And when we're talking about the apostle, we're talking about his work, that comes from God to man. And then when we talk about his high priestly ministry, we're talking about his work on behalf of man to God. That's the difference. And so this afternoon we're talking about how he came and was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And that we understand why he came. Why did he come? To be an apostle. Sent of God. And we'll look at that word in in a little while as well. We thank God, don't we, that he is our apostle, the prophet from God. And he is the prophet from God, of course. And that's how we understand it. These two offices that we're speaking about today are probably so much the most important of all. You know, some regard the Lord Jesus Christ as God only. But he wasn't, he was, he was more than that, or less than that, if you, whichever way you want it. He was, he, he was made man. And, and others will say, well no, he was both, but he was only man, really, in this life. And, and yet he was the highest created man that ever was. And no, that's not what the Bible teaches. He was both. But of course we go on, don't we, and this is very important to this testimony, that we recognise three offices in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the prophet, the apostle of our profession. He is, of course, the one who represents God to man, and that's what we're looking at. He is the priest, or the high priest. He represents man in the presence of God. But he's more than that, isn't he? He's king as well the one who exercises dominion and restores the original dominion 
of man and one day will reign whose right it is to reign. And so the three things must come into all of our consideration. Some uh, will tell us, of course, that he was three things while he was here on earth. He was prophet, he was priest, and he was king all of the time. I'm not sure that that is so. I think that there was a chronological uh, chronology about it, a chronological uh, succession. He was prophet because he came as man representing God. Uh, he was the apostle and prophet during his earthly ministry. He was priest in his sufferings and his entering into heaven, which we'll think of again, and he's the king in waiting uh, for that great day of the Lord and he will come whose right it is to reign in great power and in great glory. So we're going to think, if we can, a little while today about the Apostle. Now, let me uh, say that uh, I don't know which is the highest of the prophet, priest or king, and I'm not sure if we should even regard it in, in that manner. But we do know that each one has its own importance, doesn't it? And when you think about the Apostle, my, how important is that, that he is our Apostle. But what does it actually mean for us? How do we understand that? Well, the first thing that I want to say is uh, that it speaks to me about his humanity. And, and we have to understand that Jesus really was a man. Sometimes those of us who are so intent on, on making sure people understand we believe in the deity of Christ, we forget his humanity. He really was man. And so we're going to think, if we can, a little bit about his humanity. And the first thing that I would say is that he was a genuine uh, man. The Bible tells us that in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, he represented the two natures. He was human and he was divine. This is the mystery of godliness. And, and we can't understand it. Uh, we can't understand how he united himself as God to our human nature for our salvation. But that's the truth. And that's what the Bible teaches. Thomas Watson said this, and I thought it was worth quoting to you. He took our flesh upon him that he might make our human nature appear lovely to God and the divine nature appear lovely to man. He was the shepherd in sheep's clothing for the sheep. And he was. You know, we often think of it differently than that, don't we? But Thomas Watson was very pithy in some of the things he had to say. We sing, don't we? Veiled in flesh, the God has seen. Jesus, our Emmanuel. His humanity was actual, just the same as our humanity, without sin. He was perfect. And that doesn't mean mature, it means perfect. And that was necessary, wasn't it, uh, to become the mediator. Remember, when we quote that verse, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And we have to understand that. And if it was the man, Christ Jesus, then he fulfilled all the criteria that was necessary. Now, there are many evidences of this. Peter, on the day of the uh, Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, in that great sermon, uh, said, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God. What a verse when you think about it. A man approved unto God. And let me, if I can, go through one or two things with you, uh, just so that we can emphasize this. And there may be many other things that you can uh, think of yourself. Remember, one of the first references to the Lord is in Luke 2, and it speaks in chapter 2 and verse 40. He grew. And the child grew and waxed strong. He grew naturally. I don't believe that there was any miracle that he jumped from there to there. He grew naturally. He was a man. And then we remember how he was hungry. After being tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, he fasted 40 days, says the word of God, and 40 nights. And he was after, afterward and hungered. The Lord Jesus was hungry. And remember when he came even to the fig tree, he came if happily he might find fruit. Now why was that? Because he wanted to eat of that fruit, of course. 
And then we read how he was thirsty in John 4 and verse uh, uh, 7. Uh, you'll remember how he came to the woman at the well and he said these very words, give me to drink. He must have been thirsty. And in the same chapter, he was weary. Imagine the Son of God being weary. No, he was man as well. And, and so John 4 and verse 6, it says, being wearied, he sat on the well. Could you imagine that? The Lord sitting on the well and he asked for drink. You'll remember how he wept. And if I were to ask you the shortest verse in the Bible, you'd all shout out, wouldn't you? Jesus wept in John 11 and verse 35. We read how he slept. Remember in Matthew, uh, rather Mark 4 and verse uh, 38, the great storm that occurred. And he was asleep on a pillar, the word of God says. He sleeps in the storm. And then he sighed in, in Mark 7 and verse 34. Looking up to heaven, he sighed. He perspired. Remember the story of Gethsemane. And Luke 22 and verse 44. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood. He was tempted. Hebrews 2 and verse 18. Suffered being tempted. We'll come to that, of course, when we're thinking more about these verses. And then we know that he died. John 19 and verse 33. He was dead already when the soldiers came to him. And remember, the interesting thing is that, that was a voluntary death. He need not have died. Why? Because he was sinless. We must die because of sin. And that is what the Word of God teaches. All men must die because of sin. He was the only sinless man uh, uh, that need not have died. Therefore, it was a voluntary death that he did upon the cross at Calvary. Only a sinless man uh, could atone for the sins of others. Uh, uh, Charles Wesley's hymn is a, a great hymn, but I think it's incorrect. Uh, Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. The immortal never can die. Now, we sing it, and maybe you say, well, poetic license. And maybe that's right sometimes, but the immortal doesn't die. No, it's Jesus the man who dies. There's no question in my mind that that is uh, right and, and proper. And yet he is God, isn't he? And we understand that, don't we? We look at his claims, I am. We look at his powers and the power that he had. We look at the miracles uh, that he wrought, able to forgive sins, that even to calm the sea and, and to stand and, and to calm the sea. Imagine all of this, so very wonderful. Napoleon is reputed to have said, I think I understand somewhat of human nature. I am a man. But no one is like him, Jesus. He was more than a man. And we say amen to that, don't we? But think of his birth. As a baby, he was born. Naturally. But as God, they could come and worship him. Remember the story of that woman with an issue of blood. He felt someone touch him. He was a man. And yet as God he could cure that incurable disease that she had. Even the woman of the well. He was wearied as a man. And yet as God he could give her water that she thirst not again. And as the boat, as we just mentioned, in the storm, as a man he would sleep. But as God he could say peace be still and even the winds and the waves must obey him. At Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept. He's a man. But as God, he could say, Lazarus, come forth, and even the dead must obey him. He says, as a man, he dies upon the cross at Calvary. But as God, he rises again, triumphant, even over death. So you see, he was a genuine man. How do we understand this word? Consider the apostle of our profession. He's a man. We understand his humanity. But there's more to it than this, and this is very important to understand. Not only is he a genuine man, but he's a God-sent man. We understand the word apostle just means one who is sent. But it means more than that. It means sent with a message. And no man is just sent, but he's sent for a purpose. He's sent with a message. 
So that the words which the Lord Jesus uttered were the message which God desired that men and women should understand and know. What if you turn with me to the Gospel of John? And if you like at your leisure, uh, please go through the Gospel of John and see how many times you will find uh, that the Lord Jesus spoke about him being sent. We turn to chapter 3, first of all, and this is a well-known chapter to all of us, but John chapter 3 and verse 17. This is said in the negative, but we imply it into the positive. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we interpret those words, God sent his Son into the world that the world might be saved. And that was the purpose, of course, why God sent him. But turn to chapter 4 and verse 34. Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now if we feel ourselves that we are sent of God, because we should do, then haven't we come into the world to fulfil his will and to do his work, to finish his work? But the Lord was a sent man, wasn't he? And that's the apostle. He was a sent man, the apostle of our profession. Turn to chapter 5, and there's lots of verses in here, so we'll just look at some in chapter 5 and leave it at that. But I just want to emphasise this to us so that we understand what this apostle really is about. He's a sent man with a message. Chapter 5 and verse 23. That all men should honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. He that honoureth not the Son, honoureth not the Father, which hath sent him. You know, it's a wonderful thing to know that you're sent. I go back to the story of Nehemiah, which I love very much. And Nehemiah, when he came before the king, the king wondered why his countenance was sad. Do you remember the story? And immediately he prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king, his ejaculatory prayer to heaven, and then he said to the king. And he asked for three things. But the first thing that he asked for was, was, was very important. He asked to be sent to Jerusalem. Now he asked that he was safe and he would be supplied. But the most important thing there was that he was sent. How could he go back to Jerusalem and just stand there and say, let's build the wall? But he went in the name of the king. And so he comes as a sent man. That's the Lord. He came as a sent man. And he came in the name of the God of heaven. Is that wonderful? And so should you and I. I wouldn't preach, and I mean this, I wouldn't preach if I didn't know that I was sent of the Lord. We've got to be sent of the Lord. But we are sent. The Lord has sent us. And we're here for a purpose. We're not here by accident. We don't believe in luck or chance, do we? We believe that God is the sovereign ruler of the skies. And because he is, then we're in his sovereign plan and we're sent of God. Now we looked at what? Verse 23. So let's have another look at the... Verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And then in verse 30. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me verse 36 but I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me verse 37 and the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me verse 38 and ye have not his word abiding in you for whom he hath sent him ye believe not. Now, I'm only going through one or two verses in there, which I picked out, and I've only read on one chapter, but the, the Gospel of John is full of this fact. The Father has sent me, the Father has sent me, the Father has sent me. And that's why we believe in him. Even unto them the words which thou gavest me, that they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. And that's where we stand today. 
they have believed that thou didst send me. I believe that Jesus was sent of the Father. Don't you? I believe that he's the apostle of our profession. And that's why we believe him. You know, prophets had to be sent men, didn't they? Otherwise they were false. If a prophet came and said anything that wasn't of God, people knew it. It never came to pass. The Hebrew word for prophet, by the way, uh, is, is to bubble forth as a fountain. And that was the, the actual meaning of the word. Here's a man who bubbles forth as a fountain. Uh, imagine that. But you can understand why it was. This man's full of the word of God. And here's Jesus bubbling forth as a fountain with the word of God. You know, there were three words which were often used about the prophet. He was a seer. That's an interesting word, isn't it? He was a gazer on the spiritual world. He was a seer. And then he was a fourth teller of God's word. He had a burden of the word of the Lord. And then he was a foreteller because he looked into the future and he predicted things which always came to pass. Why? Because the word came from the Lord and every word which Jesus said became true. Isn't it little wonder why this epistle to the uh, Hebrews begins, God, who in sundry times and divers manners spake unto the fathers, hath in these last times spoken unto us by his Son. Because that's what it is, isn't it? Now I want to go on very quickly, I'll just be a few more minutes, but uh, I have a lot to say on this because I love the epistle and I love the subject. I've spoken to you about his humanity. Now I want to speak to you about his heraldry or his he the herald. Turn to chapter 1 of Hebrews and maybe you can follow with me <coughs> as I go through one or two things. What I want to really do, if I can, uh, and if I have time, is simply to uh, speak to you about seven things that God says about his son. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I, I, I've seen this here and uh, I, I feel it, it, it's worth passing on to you. But before we come to that, let me just show you how the son is described here. Uh, for instance, in uh, verse 2, uh, he is the appointed heir hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Christ is the heir of all things. That's a tremendous statement. And then we go on, don't we? Uh, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the world. So the second thing is he's the author of creation. But not only creation here, but the universe of the worlds, it says there, and it really is in the plural, in the, in the Greek. And then in verse 3, he is the accepted revealer whom being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So he's the revealer of God. And we think of the Shekinah glory. And he was the one who brought the Shekinah glory, of course, from heaven above. Christ is to the Father what the rays of the su uh, rays are, to, are to the Son, if you can understand what I mean by that. And then he's the able sustainer because that word goes on, doesn't it? And, and it says, upholding all things. We don't believe in a creation that was just done and, and then left. No, he upholds all things and that's why this whole world is the same. That's, that's something about his power. We don't, we're not deists. They believe that uh, God created the earth like a clockwork toy and wound it all up and then threw it into space. Well, no, that's not true. God has not left his creation. He's the upholder of the creation. And then he achieves uh, redemption because we read here, when he had by himself purged our sins. The word purged is an interesting word. We, that means purge every sin completely so that we're whiter uh, than the snow. It's a complete redemption, a perfect redemption. And then after that, uh, what did he do? Well, he's the anticipated ruler. Uh, because we read, uh, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's interesting, you know, that the priests in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and, and in the temple, there was no chair for him ever to sit down. The priest never could. Why? Because the work was never finished. But when Christ purged our sins, he sat down. Why? Because the work is finished. Uh, and it's complete, once and for all. But we go on there and it says about him being the right hand of the majesty on high. He's uh, there, to my mind, the anticipated ruler. He's on the right hand of God. That's the place of privilege. He's expecting to be the ruler and he will be the ruler because that, of course, is uh, predicted in the word of God. 
and he's acknowledged as the supreme. So that verse 4, being so much better than the angels, as he have uh, uh, by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. All the angels are very important. If we had time we could study the angels. But he is much better than the angels. Now, very quickly, let me show you the seven things God says about his son. What I mean here is you follow it through and you will see that God actually says these words concerning his son. First of all, here is his designation. Verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That's the first thing he said about his son. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. We can't fully understand how he could be the son and yet we know that that is taught in the word of God C.H. Spurgeon speaking on Christ's uh, sonship said, said these words we cannot fully understand by human understanding but we do accept this truth by revelation and of course that's how we do accept it it speaks of relationship he was begotten and not created uh, and the recognition uh, and, and that's all through here Christ is supreme an atheist was, was dying and as he was dying they said to him hold on, hold on but the poor man didn't know who or what to hold on to he had nothing that you and I do because we know that, that of course is true and then the second thing notice here is the provision in the same verse, verse 5 we read and we go on and again so he said first of all thou art my son and then again I would be to him a father how wonderful that is that he is our father you know the first prophecy concerning uh, him being his father is probably found in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14 we can't look at that but here it speaks about God coming into the world and remember we've spoken about his humanity and it's the father's care I will be a father to him it's the father's provision it's the father's providence and, and the promise of the father probably was made long before he undertook to make the work. Could you imagine imagine in, in, in eternity when there was that conference between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Son said, well, I'll go and I'll redeem. And the Father said, I will be a father unto you. Lovely thought, isn't it? But that's what it means and somehow if we can grasp that we can understand that as well. Hebrews in chapter 1. Now, look up the next one. Here is the expectation in verse 6 and again when he bringeth in the firstborn begotten rather uh, into the world he, he said and let all the angels of God worship him uh, expectation Christ is superior uh, superior to all the angels of course were servants but Christ was the son uh, and the angels did worship him, didn't he? And God said that they would do that. They worshipped him at his birth, after the wilderness, in the garden of Gethsemane, and then at the resurrection. Angels were there. They were mighty, but he was almighty. They were the messengers, but he was the message. They were the stars, but he was the sun. And the angels worshipped him. And then the fourth thing is the function look at verse 8 but unto the son he said thy throne thy throne we believe that he's the king we believe that he's the rightful king of kings of course he's the rejected king at this moment and the prince of the power of the earth seems to take control but one day he will reign whose right it is to reign and you'll notice in that verse somehow it says to me at least uh, that he is the resolute king as well. Because it says, and we'll come back to one a couple of words here, but unto the Son he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Ever and ever. It's not it's going to go on forever. But the manifestation is here, and that's that's the fifth point. In verse eight it says, Unto the Son he said, Thy throne, O God. Could you imagine the Father speaking about the Son? and saying, oh God, this is a remarkable statement. But it's the Father's declaration of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the cornerstone of our faith. And in verse 9 it speaks about him being anointed. 
But do you notice, all of these times, it's the Father speaking about the Son. But we've only done five. Number six, uh, his position. And look at this in verse 11. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old, as doth a garment. This is God speaking. And as a vesture, thou shalt fold them up, and they shall all be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Thou art the same. You know, that speaks about the immutability of Christ. The one who never changes and cannot change. And the Father testified to that fact. We sometimes miss that out. And, and even we could read that. And, and the contrast is here. You know, it says, all, all wax old as a doth a garment, but not Christ. He is young forever. And the final thing you see there is the exaltation. Verse 13. But to which of the angels said he, at any time, sit on my right hand until I make the enemies thy footstool? Never said that to angels. They were the exalted beings. But he said it to the Son. And you know there's a progression through those seven things. Go through them again yourself, and I know I'm hurrying, but go through them, and you will see there's a progression until you come to this fact, the exaltation. Sit thou, my right hand, until I make enemies thy footstool. Now, the final thing I want to say this afternoon about Jesus being the apostle, and you'll remember that I said that it speaks of his humanity, and also... Uh, of course, we, we, we spoke, didn't we, uh, about it being the herald, the herald of these things that I've said, but also he's the helper, the helper. Until we come to the death of Christ, he is our apostle. And what is said in this book is what he did in the days of his flesh. Now, we apply them very often to the work of the Holy uh, High Priest, and we will do that but I want to tell you that really it's what he did in the days of his flesh that really counts. Of course it counts about the high priest, it must do, mustn't it? But you see, what he did in the days of his flesh, he continues to do now. And that's the important thing. So what he did as the apostle, he still does as the high priest. How wonderful that really is. Turn with me to chapter 2, and I'm going to read just uh, one or two words from verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, flesh and blood. That's humanity, isn't it? And through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily took not on him the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succour them that are tempted. He is the helper. Three things come out of that, and just verse 15 of chapter 4. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. All of those things there applied to his high priestly ministry, but he could not do them today if he had not been like that as the apostle here in the flesh. And it's, it's obvious when you look at it like that, isn't it? Just three things that I close. First of all, you'll notice he was concerned. We read the verse, didn't we? Made like unto his brethren. And he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And he was tempted in all points like as we are. Is that quite remarkable that Jesus was like that? It really is when you consider. He was concerned for our being. As the apostle, you see, he really was. And then his compassion chapter 5 and verse 2 who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed about with infirmity that's the days of the flesh and so it seems and in the gospel so often he had compassion didn't he? he had compassion he had compassion and he's still the same as the high priest because he was as the apostle 
And that's why he is today. And then the third thing is his care for us. Now I've rushed through these, but look at verse 16. For verily took not on him the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham. Now, let me read it to you again. Only this time I'm going to re- miss out the words and not in the original. You know the words in italics are not in the original Greek. And so you can easily read this word. For verily took not on angels, but took on the seed of Abraham. What does that mean? Here were the fallen angels. Here was fallen man. Which would he take on? The fallen angels were much more profitable. The fallen angels would have been much better to redeem. They wouldn't have been rebellious like man would be. Who's he going to take on? He took not on angels, the case of angels, but rather he took on the case of man. Aren't you glad he did? How wonderful that the Lord did that and he came here as the apostle. Let us consider the apostle of our profession. And may we do that today and rejoice that we have such a wonderful apostle. May God bless his word to us.